All right. Well, good morning. I see a fair number of uh, new faces this week, and so I think it's worth mentioning. My name is Ben, and I am one of the pastors here at Auburn Bible Chapel. I am not actually the one who you would see up here most often. Uh, My role is care and discipleship, and we have another pastor who focuses on the teaching. And I get the privilege of being up here once in a while in between series that are taking place uh, here on Sunday mornings and and being able to share a little bit about what it is that God is doing in in the ministry that I get to be part of here at Auburn, as well as at Trent University and up north with Cree communities. Uh, and, And occasionally when I'm up here, I figure it's a good chance to give a personal update too to share what's going on there uh, because of the fact that uh, I I don't get to share publicly all that often. And uh, I wanted to head off some conversations at the pass because I'm anticipating that over the next month or so, a lot of people are going to be coming up to us and asking us questions because we're going to be getting a new vehicle. And this is not a preferential choice. Uh, This is because on Friday, I was teaching a student how to drive and this happened. (laughs) So... I will not go into detail or name any names. Fortunately, it was not actually as bad of a collision as it looks like. It was only going about 50 kilometers per hour, and when we were going too fast around a corner, instead of hitting the brake, the person accelerated into a tree. And so that, that is what took place, and our armada is dead. So um, <laughs> we will be going through the process of insurance and all of that jazz, but I figured easier to just announce it publicly. You know what happened, and so when you see us busing to church or when you see us getting a new vehicle, you kind of, you have the backstory behind that one. Alongside that, uh, my wife and I actually agreed it's probably worth sharing a personal update that we have actually been intentionally allowing to trickle out rather than being something we do a public announcement about, but uh, it's been quite a while since that trickle started, and every once in a while we run into somebody who still has yet to hear the news, and so I think it's, it's good to share that my wife and I are in the process of adopting a little girl. <laughs> Now, this is something that we've been praying about for some time now, and back last year, right around this time, actually a little sooner than this time, we got approached because this little girl in my extended family needed adopting, and it has been a long process, it's still ongoing, and we would appreciate your prayers in that regard because it has been a tiring process. That being said, we've gotten to see her every couple weeks for the last while and are building a good relationship, and we're hoping everything moves ahead in a timely and good manner, uh, but, but your prayers are appreciated on that front, and, and again, now every who hasn't heard that before uh, is in on the know, and so uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to have the support of the community around us as we go through that process. Um, alongside that, as you know, again, I, I'm part-time here at the church, and I'm working at Trent and up north with First Nations people, and I, I feel like it's always a good opportunity to be able to plug that uh, we do produce a quarterly newsletter that shares about what's going on in those environments, and uh, we have one that I did just a, a week or two ago that you can grab in the back on the missionary bulletin board back there if you want to know a little bit more of what it is that we're doing in those environments ministry-wise. And most of the time that I spend at Trent University is spent mentoring young people as they do ministry at Trent. And here's a picture of some of the people that I mentor. You recognize a few of them. And what they're doing here is serving a meal for 60 international students that we do on a weekly basis at Trent with partnerships from local churches. And it's a real joy for me to be part of that ministry and to see the students growing as they exercise leadership and serve Christ in a secular environment. And the nature of working with university students and mentoring them as they go through the process of growing in their faith and serving others is that a lot of the time, uh, certain topics come up as they wrestle with what their faith means. 
And of those topics, one of the ones that comes up more often than others is the story of creation that we find in Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2, which we've had read here this morning. Uh, this, is, this is a story that comes under a lot of attack from the world around us, and it's a story that has a lot of different interpretations and debates going on. And uh, I, I figured that this was a good opportunity to be able to speak to that a little bit. In fact, when Brent asked me if I wanted to speak in November in between series, I actually said to him, actually, could I spend a few weeks talking specifically about creation? I have some things I'd really like to share on that front, and he thought it was a really good idea and an opportunity to share a little bit of the types of conversations that I'm having at Trent University. Uh, and and so that's, that's what we're going to be camping out on this week as well as the next two weeks is this story of creation and some of the things that we can take away from it that help us grapple with our time and age that we are presently in. Now, I, I want to invite you just for a second to close your eyes and to imagine with me what it must have been like to be one of the angelic host or, or maybe even one of the members of the Trinity that was there at that time of creation, that, that you're gathered with God as he unrolls this black canvas before you and, and calls it matter. And this is something that nobody's ever heard of up to this point in time, and it actually seems pretty boring at first because it's kind of formless and kind of empty. It's just, it's, just, it's just this stuff that's there that doesn't really have anything going on in it. And then as you watch, suddenly God speaks and says, Let there be! And all of the stars and planets, the black holes, the nebulae, the animals, the water, they all spring into existence just like that. What would it be like to see creation taking place in front of your eyes? Now, of course, as we, as we do this mental game, we know in our heart of hearts that whatever we imagine is probably less than the truth. <laughs> that however much our imaginations can take us there, it's really incomprehensible to think what it must have been like to see all of creation rolling forth. But what we might not realize is that what we imagine is actually pretty far off from what the author of the creation narrative would have imagined. I think that we have to be conscious that the book of Genesis was written in a time and a place that was very different than our own. That it was written in a region called Mesopotamia in the ancient Near East a, a, a long time ago, 6,000 6, and slightly more recently than that, years ago. And that the people then had a very different understanding of what the world was like. Now, I put up an image of this that kind of shows a little bit about what it is that ancient Near Easterners thought the world was like, with a number of different Bible verses that kind of make reference to these various elements of what the cosmos looked like. We see a flat earth that's surrounded by water. We see this firmament, this dome in the sky. And that dome separates us from the watery heavenly realm where the divine beings live and the rest of creation that's down below. We see that there's celestial bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, that actually travel around the inside of this firmament. And, and actually, they believed that rain was caused by the heavenly waters falling through cracks in this dome. 
And there's an underworld. Whatever that looks like, and, and different cultures had slightly different understandings of this, there was this place underneath the earth, often that was a watery place in its own right, <clears throat> where the souls of human beings would go to rest when we died. And there they were separated from God's presence in kind of a limbo-type state. And then normally in, in ancient Near Eastern religions, there's a holy place right at the center of the earth where God's presence is manifest, that, that the heavenly bodies kind of connect with the earth and, and, and the divine presences are felt. And so that was generally some sort of a temple or some sort of a mountain. And in the Bible, the thing that bridges heaven and earth is the temple itself and Mount Zion, right? Where Jerusalem, the holy city, is located. And, and, and we can see that this is reflected in the creation narrative, as well as a number of different stories and verses throughout Scripture. And, and we see that if we take a close reading, it, it kind of is a little bit confusing unless you have this in mind. You see, the creation narrative takes place over the course of six days plus a day of rest. And there's kind of this pattern that takes place where God first creates a number of different spaces and then fills those spaces. And so we had the whole narrative read to us, but just in summary, we see that God begins by creating light and dark, which I think is really a placeholder for time. Night and day, time is taking place. It's a space in which things happen. Then we see that he separates the waters below from the waters above by creating this heavenly dome. And then we see he creates land out of the waters below and he fills it with vegetation kind of they're ripe for something to be living. And then we see that he fills the initial time with the heavenly bodies. And that those heavenly bodies are there to keep track of the seasons and let us know what it is that God is doing in the world. So he fills the space of the time. And then, and then we see that he fills the air and the water with fish and with birds. And then we see that he fills the land. First with all of the creepy crawly things that live upon the earth, and then ultimately with human beings. And this is given a fair amount of time and attention in the creation narrative. And then finally, after all of this is done, God looks and says, this is good, and he rests. Now, the reason I raise this and kind of both the, the, the understanding of the world that the author of Genesis would have had in mind when they were writing, and, and, and the reason why I talk about this six-day pattern and what's going on there, is, is not really to make you doubt Scripture. Not that at all. Although some people do point to this and say, see, this isn't reliable. I don't believe that's true. If the Bible was written primarily as a science textbook, maybe we would look at this and, and shake a little bit <laughs> in fear. But, but actually, I think understanding this is helpful because what we are able to see as we study this passage and others like it is that the Bible was written as a response to an ancient culture. The Bible's purpose isn't to give us a comprehensive understanding of science. The Bible's purpose is to show us what God is like and what he wants his people to be, and it does that by pushing back against the norms of its day. That's how the Bible functions. And so, and so when you understand the general worldview then you're able to begin going, okay, what is it that differentiates this creation narrative from other myths, other creation narratives, other stories that were taking place in and around the Bible's writing? What is it that God wanted to say is true over and against all of the lies of the ancient world? And in doing this, I think 
we actually do two things simultaneously. One of, one of the things we do is we kind of acknowledge, okay, the Bible isn't really written specifically to address the questions that we have today. That when it comes to some of the debates, like whether or not Darwin's theory of evolution actually makes sense biologically, the Bible doesn't speak to that directly. And I think if we try and shoehorn it into that debate, we probably do ourselves a disservice. That being said, I would actually argue when we acknowledge that, we actually are able to take the Bible and find more helpful things for answering the questions of today. So it's kind of the paradox of Scripture that when we try and shoehorn it into saying things it just wasn't written to say, then we actually struggle to defend those claims that we're trying to get out of it. Whereas when we're able to look and see what it was that the author intended to say to their original audience, then at that point in time, we're able to say, okay, now I can take some of the really important meaning that they were giving and apply it in my own context and have a dialogue with my own culture. And I think that's really the way that we need to apply all of the Bible, and in particular, the oldest parts that just are so different than some of the things that we understand about the world. Some of you who are invested in kind of the academic scene and and trying to understand the intellectual side of Christianity are familiar with a term called apologetics. Apologetics is the art of trying to respond to the questions our culture is asking about God today. It's kind of defending the faith on intellectual grounds. And I would argue that Genesis 1 is written as an ancient apologetic. And so over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at, is to try and understand what is it that it's defending against and what is its claims in light of that. Now, I want to to suggest that there are three really important components of the worldview that, that the author of this narrative is trying to put forward. I'm going to throw out some technical terms and I don't normally do that very much on Sunday mornings because I'm not sure technical terms are always helpful. They're a bit obscure. But, but I think they're important technical terms for us to understand. I think that the creation narrative gives us a theology, a cosmology, and an anthropology. A theology is simply an understanding of who God is and what the spiritual realm is like. And that's the first thing that we're going to look at is, is considering the theology of the creation narrative. But alongside that, any good worldview has to understand a cosmology, which is just the nature of what the cosmos, the universe, is like. And so that's what we'll look at next week. And we also have to be able to understand the nature of anthropology, which is what human beings are like. Who are we as people? And that's what anthropology is. And so that's what we'll be looking at in two weeks. And I think as we look at these different areas of what Genesis 1 is written to address we will actually come away with some really important ideas that help us respond to what our culture around us today tries to teach us about these exact same things, the spirituality and the nature of the universe and the nature of human beings. I'm hoping that this will all be a very good follow-up to some of what Brent has said as he's preached the last few weeks on the holiness and majesty of God and the fact that we are called to live like him. And, And I think a lot of that flows from the Bible's theology, cosmology, anthropology. And I also hope that it sets us up well for the Christmas series that we're going to do after this because we're celebrating the God who came to be with us. And I think this will clarify a little bit of some of the things that we should be understanding about that narrative as we go and celebrate the Christmas season together. So that's that's my hopes out of this series. Now, with that as a long introduction, as I said, today's sermon is going to be focusing on the theology of Genesis 1 over and against the competing theologies of its day. We will consider the general theology of what ancient Near Eastern religions 
accepted. Then we're going to look at the way that the creation narrative responds to those ancient Near Eastern understandings. And then I'd like to consider how that can inform our own dialogue with our culture today. So that's, that's what I'm putting forward, is we're going to look at first the general theology of the region, then we're going to look at the way this narrative responds to it, and then we're going to talk about how does that inform our response to our culture today. And the key argument that I'm going to put forward is that the creation narrative's unique focus on Yahweh's sovereignty is still a major challenge to our culture's worldview and is a vital aspect of our witness today. I'll say that again. The creation narrative's unique focus on Yahweh's sovereignty is still a major challenge to the people around us and an essential part of our witness in our culture. Now let's start by looking at the general understanding of the world and the spiritual realm that the ancient Near Eastern has had. First of all, it's important to note that virtually all of the cultures at that time worshipped gods that were an extension of their natural world. That, that they acknowledged there was a lot about the world that they didn't understand, that made them afraid, that, that made their well-being compromised. And, and so, and so they, they worshipped those things by deifying them. And there's a lot of different aspects of this. Some of them are kind of abstract principles, like love or glory or honor. Others are things that are a little bit more concrete, like the storm gods or the gods of the harvest. But the idea is always that they were looking at their natural world and projecting onto that natural world a spiritual power, a spiritual authority. I included here a picture, a very old picture, of one of the gods of the region whose name coincidentally is Sin. It is the Mesopotamian moon god. And of course, those who are familiar with Christianity know this term sin because it talks about living a way that God is not wanting us to. And I think you begin to see, even in that little nuance, that the ancient authors of the Bible were actually trying to draw upon other things to suggest that sin is false worship. That it is worshiping things other than the one true God. So there's a little verbal play that I think is important for us to understand. But again, the main point is that Mesopotamian religions, by and large, were built on this idea that the created stuff around us had some sort of spiritual authority to it. And what they would do is they would worship those things primarily as a means of trying to manipulate their circumstances. That if we worship the God of the harvest, then we will be able to get the best return on our efforts this year. And if we worship the God of honor and glory then maybe we'll be able to actually win the wars that we fight against the people around us. And if you properly identify who the gods are that are in charge of those realms of the world, and you worship them the way they are wanting, then hopefully you can eke out a slightly better existence by the end of your year. And, and, and as a culture, they really built all of their culture around this, this, this kind of scrambling to try and identify what it is you should do in your worship to try and maximize your well-being as a society. And in fact, there was really strict punishment for people who didn't worship properly because the understanding was if you didn't worship properly, that might actually cost the community a lot of well-being. That if you falsely worship for the god of harvest, you choose the wrong god or you worship them in the wrong way, then maybe you would have famine, Right? And so there was, there, was, there was kind of a fear and trembling that took place because of the fact that we, we might end up losing something big. People might even die if our worship is falsely done. 
And so this is the scene into which the creation narrative is meant to speak, is this kind of multiplicity of different gods who are competing your attention, and you've got to worship them in fear that they might come against you if you don't properly identify and worship who they are. And the creation narrative is very intentionally meant to respond to that by asserting that this is not an accurate understanding of the spiritual realm. Now, I'm going to pull out a few verses from the creation narrative. Again, we heard it read over fully, and I'm grateful to Daniel and the team for doing that. I didn't want to get up here and just in a monotonous way read it to you, but I do want to grab some verses from it that you're able to see kind of the the, the responsiveness that's taking place in the passage. I mean, the first place we see the theological response taking place is right in the very first verse. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, to us, we take this for granted. I suspect that anybody with any sort of church background, if I said to you, what is Genesis 1-1, you've probably got this pretty close to memorized because it's one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. It's one of those things that we just kind of take as integral to our worldview, that there was a divine being in the beginning who created the universe. But this is actually not the way that the ancient people understood it. Again, their understanding was that there was a whole lot of different gods, and they were kind of all interwoven with the natural world. And so this very statement actually singles out Yahweh as the one who's uniquely responsible for creating and forming everything. In fact, one of the things that really stands out throughout this whole narrative is that no other gods are even worth naming, right? You don't see mention of any other sort of divine beings other than maybe a slight reference to the fact that there's other spiritual beings when God says, let us make man in our image. And some people think that our is God kind of talking to the other divine beings and say, hey, we're going to go down and do something big, right? But that, that's the only time, and, 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 and even there, if that's true, that that's kind of a reference to the divine beings, God is singled out as kind of the great one among them who is transcendent in a way that none of them are even worth mentioning. Okay, whatever. We're really focusing on Yahweh's role in this. God is uniquely responsible for creating and forming everything. Right after that, we see this, this interesting verse that I tried to reflect in my little imaginary telling of the creation narrative, where we see that whatever happens in 1 verse 1 leaves the earth the cosmos without form and void. So it's kind of like this, there's this, this matter, this stuff that's all around, and, and it says that darkness was over the face of the deep, which is a reference to those lower waters that kind of form the underworld and the stuff around the earth, right? And we're told the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we see this moment where God speaks. Let there be light. Now, now, again, as we read this, we kind of have our Christian understanding, and we've kind of already got this understanding of the, the unique, sovereign, omnipotent creator of the, the heavens and earth, right? So, so we read back into this, and we're not really particularly surprised by the fact that God is speaking and making things happening. But actually, this is different than the understanding of the ancient world. Again, for them, the divine beings were kind of facets of the created order, and most of what takes place in creation is actually a product of the gods fighting with each other. That they conflict, and, and so one of them gets killed, and then they become the ground. Or, or they're fighting, and, and one of their, 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 them kind of is, is having a conflict with human beings, and so the human beings have to steal something from them to make things happen. And there's this kind of chaotic unfolding of everything that takes place, and, and the whole time... Uh, there's not this sense that the gods really have a lot of control over it. It's just kind of chaos happening. 
But actually, one of the things that differentiates Yahweh from other ancient gods is that he can't be seen in this case, but he can be heard. The term spirit of God actually translates to the breath of God or the wind of God. So we're told the, the breath of God was hovering over the earth and then he spoke. And so God is associated with this idea of wind and breathing and speaking. And this is something that you see all throughout the Old Testament that other gods can be seen, that you can, you can worship them because you can visibly see them, but they're mute. They really have no ability to speak into the world and to make things happen. Whereas God, who often appears invisible, actually is the only one who can speak and make things happen. That God's voice, his breath, is actually part of his reality and his authority. And so we see taking place here in verses 2 and 3, this idea of Yahweh as the one true God who can actually speak things into existence. It's a sign of his authority in a way that no other divine being has. Alongside this, as we go a little further down into the passage, we see that there are lights in the expanse of the heavens that separate the day and the night. We see God declaring, let them be for signs and for seasons, which is a reference to the various feasts that take place throughout the Hebrew years. And for days and for years, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now again, to us, we read this, and when we've already got this idea of the great God in the back of our minds, it's not really particularly surprising that he created all of the balls of gas up floating above our head that give us light. Right? This, is, this is kind of our modern understanding. But for the ancient world, the celestial bodies were divine beings, sometimes among the greatest of the divine beings. I already noted that sin is the moon god, right? And they recognized that these great lights had some sort of authority over the rest of the other gods. And so it's actually incredibly controversial that the author of Genesis deliberately says these things are created by another divine being. And in fact, the author doesn't even bother to name them. If they are spiritual of any kind, it's not worth mentioning. There might even be a little hint that the author does think maybe there's some spiritual reality there because of the fact that they kind of talk about this ruling over the day and the night. But, but in comparison to Yahweh, it's insignificant. They're under his command, under his control. It's because of him that they have any ability to rule over the day and the night. So, so really, he's, the author is diminishing these to almost nothing in comparison to the greatness and the majesty of Yahweh, the one true God. So again, we see this responsive stance taking place to the cultures around it. Another example of this is a verse I've already alluded to. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, says God. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, as I already said, we're going to get into the Bible's anthropology, its understanding of humanity later, in two weeks, but again, it's important to note, Yahweh is sovereign over people too. There's no sense in this verse of the, the idea that people might threaten the gods, which was a very common element of the ancient Near Eastern understanding. 
right? In fact, some, some human beings in the ancient understanding were able to ascend to godhood, that they were so mighty, so powerful, that they themselves gained some sort of divine status. And so most rulers were understand as, understood as being that way, whether it was Caesar or whether it was Alexander the Great or whether it was, right? Like, 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 there was kind of just this general understanding. You kind of have to worship your leaders because they're so mighty, so powerful, they themselves may as well be gods. And here we don't see that at all, right? Human beings are little in comparison to Yahweh, He creates us. He gives us any authority that we might have in the world in giving us the ability to have dominion on the earth, right? And so again, we're seeing the the transcendence, the majesty of Yahweh celebrated in all of these different ways over and against the ancient culture's understandings. And the last one I want to look at is that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. And we see this phrase of the world being good repeated over and over and over again through the creation narrative. And this is kind of the climax of it where we actually see this statement that it is very good or good, good, right? That, that God, God has seen everything and he is totally satisfied with what it is that he has created. And again, this may make sense if you assume this almighty God who can do anything that he wants. But in the ancient cultures, that wasn't the way the world functioned. The understanding was that the world was a product of divine conflict and there were lots of things that messed up the plans of the gods and made it hard for them to accomplish their purposes. That that the universe really is the product of strife and conflict and chaos. And here we see Yahweh is successful at what he intended to do. There is no sense that anything can interfere with his creative authority, unlike all of the other gods from the ancient Near East. Now, this does raise questions about how evil enters into the world because it's clear later on in Scripture not everything is according to God's purposes. And, and we'll really camp out on that one when it comes to the anthropology section. Okay, so two weeks from now, we'll talk about the problem of evil. Okay? But for now, suffice to say that nothing in this creation narrative implies that Yahweh has any challenges to his absolute authority. And this is the big takeaway. This is the thing that sets apart all of the Old Testament from the other cultural religions that were around it. Is this idea that Yahweh is sovereign. Now, I use that word, and I recognize that for those of you who are a little bit more theologically trained, the word sovereign raises all sorts of debates around predestination and stuff like that. I'm going to steer clear of that entirely. When I use the word, I'm not talking about that debate over individual salvation. What I'm talking about is simply the fact that Yahweh is the king. He is the one who is the ruler of everything. He deserves our complete and total allegiance, and, and no, he reports to no one else. Every breath that we take, every step that we take, every dollar that we make, everything that we set our minds to do is a gift from the one true God. And because of that, Yahweh is the only one who deserves our worship and our obedience. And this is actually really important to understanding the rest of the narrative of Scripture. We see that Yahweh takes that claim in the very beginning and says, I am the only one who deserves your worship and obedience. And instead of worshiping and obeying him, we believed the lie that he wasn't to be trusted, and we turned away from him. And we did things our way, and we submitted ourselves to other powers and principalities, other ways of viewing the world, other spiritual authorities. And because of that, the world became broken. And Yahweh, instead of giving up on us, what he did is he graciously responded by calling us to return into right worship 
of him. And we see through Scripture, he actually reaches out to individuals and nations in the form of Abraham and his descendants and says, come, worship me, so that we might show the world what it looks like when true worship is taking place. And ultimately, we see that Yahweh comes as a man, as a human being, to reveal his absolute authority over everything that enslaves us as human beings, from evil spirits to sickness to the suffering that we go through, to the various circumstances like storms and other natural phenomena, that, that Jesus came as a man to show us, here's what the authority of Yahweh looks like. None of these things can affect him, to the point that he was even raised from the dead when people dared to kill him. So all of the story of Scripture is really meant to show us this idea that Yahweh is sovereign, and to bring us back into right worship of him, because it is only when we worship Yahweh that we are actually able to see life ordered properly. So in this, we have a really important response to the culture around us. There's been some good studies that have been done recently to talk about actually what has been understood in Canada as the predominant religion. And this is one of those things, I don't have time to get into all of it, but the long and the short of it is that our culture has Christian roots, but has largely left behind the Christian theology component of it. So some of our ethics and some of our understanding of the world kind of roughly parallels with Christianity. And if you talk to people around our culture, they will say things that sound awfully Christian, but for the most part, they've left behind any really good understanding of who the God of the universe is. And I encourage you to check out these studies. The first one was released in 2011, and it's called Hemorrhaging Faith. And the second is called uh, Renegotiating Faith. And it was actually just released this summer. And both of them give you a really good portrait, especially of what's going on among younger people in our culture. They were looking specifically at millennials and how their faith has changed from being raised in the church up into young adulthood. And, and, and what they come up with is this term called the Uyghur. And it's, it's kind of a complicated term, universal Gnostic religious ethic. But the basic idea is that all good religion is really just meant to make us into nice, loving people. And as long as your religion makes you into a nice, loving person, then it's good enough. And if it doesn't make you into a nice, loving person, then it's not good enough. And, and that any Christianity that's there is really only just a mechanism to become a nice, loving person. It's kind of something that helps us be good people, right? And that's really what most people who were raised in the church end up believing by the time they reach young adulthood. That's, that's the people I'm working with at Trent University. And what's interesting is that there's actually a striking resemblance in this to the religion that we were just studying from the ancient Near East. There's this idea that kind of God and spirituality are really just an extension of our natural existence. In their case, it was things like the harvest. In our case, it's mostly psychological. I have certain needs. I have certain desires. You know, whatever I worship helps me, helps me fulfill those needs and desires that are existing inside of me, Right? And really, worship is seen just as a means of manipulating your circumstances. As long as I have worship that works for me and makes my life better, then it's good enough, right? And, and of course, that's not to say that the God of the Bible has no functional value in our life. Of course, worshiping God makes a difference in our lives in a positive direction. But if you contrast the way that most people think about God in our culture to the God we see in the Old Testament— it's a very stark difference that we see. Think about the book of Job, for example. Here's this man who goes through incredible suffering. And when he questions God, he says, why would you let me go through this? Then God's response is not to say, 
it's okay, I'm here to comfort you now. It's to say, who are you to question me? I am the sovereign of the universe. I'm the one who set the boundaries of the sea. I'm the one who knows where the snow goes when it's away from us. I'm the one who feeds the eagle and makes the horse run into war. I'm the powerful force behind all of this. How can you question me and ask if I know why I let you go through what you went through? Now again, that's not to deny the value of that in our faith. I think when you believe in the sovereign God of the universe, it it helps you to grapple with the fact that, okay, there is hope beyond my circumstances, but it also really is humbling in a way that our cultural religion isn't. My understanding is small compared to this being. And so I have, to, I have to acknowledge that maybe the way I think things should be isn't the best way. And this to me is the most haunting question that you can hear echoed in our culture all around us. Do we still believe in a God who's big enough to scandalize us? I'm not sure we do. I think a lot of people believe in God as long as he fits in with their nice happy box of the world. But the idea that God would do something that's different than we would like is just totally off the radar. So again, I think as the church, we have an important thing to embrace from the Genesis narrative. That that in everything we say and we do and we believe and even we live, it has to be done with this understanding of the sovereignty of Yahweh, the God who is often invisible and yet is the great name, the one who breathes everything into existence, the one who is sovereign above all else, and that we worship him and him alone. The creation narrative's unique focus on Yahweh's sovereignty is still a major challenge to our culture's worldview and a vital aspect of our witness. We'll carry this through into the next couple of weeks, but really this is the starting point of everything. That if we rightly worship Yahweh, we line up with what the creation narrative says. Whereas if we, if we lean away from him and begin to worship ourselves or all of the different options religious-wise that we have in our day, we're losing sight of the most important thing. So that's what I'd leave you with today. Let's pray as we close off. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the creation narrative and then through Scripture, and especially as your Son, Jesus Christ, come into the world to show us what you are truly like. Father, we submit ourselves to you and acknowledge that you alone deserve all worship. And as we sing these last couple of worship songs, Father, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and that we would be the kind of community that refuses to compromise in our worship, that refuses to believe in the lies of our day, but that joins with the author of the creation narrative in saying you and you alone are deserving of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.